Man, we got one more chapter left, which is amazing. Because if you remember, I told you guys back when we started this book, I was so intimidated by this young prophet and uh, kind of nervous about starting a book that that you're intimidated to teach. Not that any, not you know, that the other ones are not intimidating, but this one in particular just kind of got to me. But uh, we're almost done. Um, chapter 13 just happens to be the shortest chapter in the book of Zechariah. So does that mean that it will be a short study? Not necessarily. But we are going to share in communion, so I am going to shorten it up tonight because I want to spend some time with you and the Lord and just kind of rejoicing in, in what He has done on our behalf and just the fact that we get to worship. And so we are in the last section of the last section, which has to do with the prophecies that will occur uh, right before or during the second coming of Christ, the second advent, as you sometimes have heard it uh, mentioned, the second advent, the second coming of Christ, the Messiah. Again, understand that the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for for the sent one, and the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, for the sent one. So when we talk about the Christ, Christ the Messiah, we're reiterating ourselves or doubling up the words or whatever, but be that as it may, um, Zechariah chapter 13, let's read the first six verses. It says, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and there shall no longer and they shall no longer re be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And, in, and it shall be in that day that every prophet shall be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, they shall not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. And he will say, I am no prophet, I am a farmer, for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, these with which I was... Um, wounded by the by the house of my friends and so let's camp out there for a little bit in verse one especially as we begin this chapter this short chapter it's interesting because several times in chapter two we saw the phrase um, we saw the phrase in that day we, we, we saw it several times in that chapter, and in this chapter we see it three more times, and we just read them in these first four verses, we read that in, in that day. A total of 17 times that phrase is mentioned in these last three chapters, because again, when we're talking about in that day, that refers to the day of the Lord, which is synonymous with the second coming of the Lord. 
the second coming of Christ. Again, understanding what, what the, the comings were, the advents were. There was the first advent, the second advent. The first advent, the first coming was when Jesus came as a child, as a baby born of a virgin. He came. And, and those two things about coming, it means when he touches down on earth, okay? Because the first time he came, he came to earth as a child. The second time he will come, he will come as as a, a victor, as a king, to set up his kingdom. The first time he came as a lamb, the second time he will come as a lion. Uh, we, we sometimes, the church sometimes gets the rapture um, kind of mixed up with the day of the Lord. And, and in the rapture, if you read First Thessalonians chapter 4 at the end there, it says that in that time when we are caught up, it's not the second coming. We meet him in the air, it says. So he doesn't touch down on earth. So that's not his second coming. The second coming is when he touches down on earth. And so again, this whole thing has to do with the second coming of Christ. And so when you hear in that day, for the most part, it's speaking about that. It's speaking about the day of the Lord. And when you hear that phrase, the day of the Lord is synonymous with the second coming. But he says, in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. The prophet Isaiah admonished the nation of Israel when he was around hundreds of years earlier. He tells them, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doing from before your eyes, cease from doing evil, Isaiah said in Isaiah 1.16. And even as he exhorted them, as he admonished them to wash themselves, the people refused to listen. And so again, we see that God was always warning his people. He was always trying to get them to turn. And so Isaiah says that hundreds of years earlier. And then the prophet Jeremiah, he pleaded with his people in his book where he says, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? That's in Jeremiah 4.14. And yet... As the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to his people, they would not obey either. It's kind of an interesting phrase what he says there. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? Again, encouraging the people to, to have a change in their lives, not only in, in their heart, but in their thoughts as well, in their direction, if you will. And yet they never did. Now, in response to all of that, we see and we saw in the last chapter that Israel will repent and have faith one day. The Lord will do the work though. He will be the one that washes them and He will be the one that cleanses them. He will be the one that forgives them. This is all part of that new covenant that he promised his people. Now, it's interesting because when we talk about a new covenant, we, we often think of the New Testament, which is the new covenant. The Old Covenant, Old Testament, New, new Covenant, New Testament. But he also 
refers to in that time making this new covenant with the children of Israel. Again, they were disobedient. They rejected him. They turned away as a nation. As individuals, many of them came to know the Lord. As a matter of fact, the church started mainly with all Jews. And so eventually it went off to the Gentiles. But this speaks of the forgiveness that will happen in this new new, uh, covenant spoken of again by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. Let me read to you Jeremiah 31 to 34. And this is what he's talking to the children of Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out in the uh, out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke though I was a husband to them says the Lord verse 33 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, I, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. I love that. What a, what, a, what a promise that he made to the children of Israel. But when, when we read in the book of, of Hebrews, there's a portion that, that that's kind of quoted where he says, I won't remember their sin no more. And what I find fascinating is that God does not have the ability to forget anything. <laughs> but he does prefer not to bring up your past sins. I love that for all the years that I've walked with the Lord, he's never thrown my, my sin at my face. Not like some people do to one another. They become not historical, uh, hysterical, but historical. Always bringing up the past. Always bringing up your past mess-ups. I love that God doesn't do that to us. And if God doesn't do that to us, why in the world would we do that to one another? Throw somebody's sin back in their face just because you're hurt. Baby. But I love the fact that that God, even though he does not have the ability to forget, he does not bring up or remember our sins no more. He doesn't bring them up. I love that. And so I love the fact that, that in Zechariah chapter 12, it ended with the nation of Israel returning to the Lord through the once rejected but now embraced Messiah. Flowing from that embrace, of the Messiah, they, they now enjoy the fountain that brings forth cleans, cleanliness of sin and their, and their iniquities or their uncleanness. I love the fact that, these, that, that it reminds us in chapter, chapter 12 that these people who had once rejected but now embraced their Messiah, who have been cleansed from all of their sin, that they came to a point, and it will happen in the future near the day of the Lord, that there will be mourning. There will be mourning in their hearts for the one whom they have pierced, it says. They will remember what they did 
over 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came the first time, they will have a different mindset. There will be a different time for the nation of Israel. And these are the promises that God continues to give to the nation of Israel. But it says that this fountain shall be opened. I love that. I love that it is open. And not just open, it remains open. He doesn't close the fountain. He, he allows it to continue to bubble up and to flow. The idea of God being a fountain to his people is often found in the Old Testament. But the way that Zechariah presents this fountain, this, this open fountain is so rich in that it will continue to stay open. And this fountain, what flows out of it is what cleanses the, his people of their sin and their iniquities or their uncleanness. Many songs have been, have been sung about a fountain in so many ways, from a fountain of blood to a fountain of living water. And so many times it, it refers back to who God is, that He is the fountain. And I love the fact that He represents God as a fountain and not a, a cistern and not a reservoir, if you will. Because a fountain is always fresh. It's always cleansing. It's always flowing. It's, it's living. Many fountains, again, they're, they're considered to be living water. Continues to bubble up and continues to flow. Not like a reservoir or a cistern where, where water be, can become stagnant. As I was thinking about this and just kind of being baptized in, in like a river and or a swimming pool or something like that, that you dunk somebody and the, the water doesn't go anywhere, it's there. It's like your sins are still there. Now, don't get me wrong. If we baptize, it's okay. If we do that, we'll drain the water and get all your sins out of there. But, but when you think about like a river, it's like you, in the water, you know, it's like your sins are washed away, man. You come up and it's all clean. That's where my little pea brain went when I was thinking about that. But it's interesting because on the day that Christ was crucified, an important day, the fountain was open potentially at that moment for all of Israel. But not just for Israel, it was open for all the world. He basically did that, but at his second coming, at his second advent, when he's talking about this fountain that shall be open for the house of David and for the, uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it is basically specifically, he's speaking here, for the Jewish nation that they will one day understand that this fountain is for them, is for them. And, and he opens it up to the house of David, and the house of David refers to the political leaders of the nation of Israel, and then he includes the rest of the people uh, by, the, by mentioning the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that all the people who desire to come to the fountain will, will have their sins washed away and cleansed. That phrase, for sin and uncleanness, again, it, it means that, that, that it could be referring to what these next verses talk about, which would be specifically their idolatry, going after other gods, often referred to as spiritual fornication going outside that place where God had his people, who, where, where he was a husband to them, and yet they're going out searching and, and, and worshiping other gods. 
but probably more than likely it carries a broader reference for the total sin of the condition of all the people of Israel. Not just the idolatry, although when you get to the last days, the idolatry that will be happening, especially during the the tribulation time, that has to do specifically with the nation of Israel, but all the world will be affected by it. There would be so much idolatrous things going on. Even as the, 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 the false prophet and the, the Antichrist come and they demand to be worshipped and bowed down to. And so, again, there will be so much idolatry. And he says to them that he, this fountain will wash away all their sins and cleanse them. And I love the fact that, again, it's, the, it's God who is doing it, not so much the people. All they have to do is come to the fountain. In verses 2 to verse 6, it says, And it shall be in that day says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall remember and they shall be remembered no more or they will no longer be remembered. Not only will their hearts be cleansed, as it said in verse 1, basically, but the land itself that has been defiled for so long will be purged. All the deceit that has covered the land will be, will be done away with. I love the fact that he, he says that these idols and, and these people will know who these idols are. But he says, I will take them out of the way to where they will not remember these idols anymore. And it's not that they, they have forgotten everything. Because again, when we sit around here, give, give each of you five minutes. Give me five minutes and I will be 30 some years or, you know, I can go back 30-some years to when I wasn't even a Christian. I could remember a lot that quick. But my heart is to be so enthralled with who God is and what He's doing in my life today that I don't like pondering or hanging out back there. It's almost like I don't want to remember the past. I don't want to live back there. And that's what He's telling these people, that, that He will remove the idols from the land, that they're not even going to remember them. And mainly it's because their focus will be on God. Whatever was on their throne before will be off and God will be sitting back on the throne of their hearts and minds. And so the people of Israel, they had two main sins that, that, that just beat them down, that just harassed them, that just troubled them. And that was idols and false prophets. False prophets that came in, false prophets from within, that they always had these things, and it says that they will be removed. As, as, as well as, he mentions, the unclean spirits, or the unclean spirit, to depart from the land. It doesn't tell us what this unclean spirit is, but there's a stark contrast between the unclean spirit that we have in verse 2 and what we saw last week in verse 10 where he talks about God and calling him the spirit of grace and supplication. What a contrast there that we have the spirit of grace and supplication and then you have these unclean, this unclean spirit. And some will even go so far as say that this unclean spirit can, can be pointing towards the Antichrist who, who will be filled with Satan himself, who will allow himself to be filled and, and manipulated by Satan himself. So that's a possibility as well. 
But when you talk about these unclean uh, or these false prophets or these people who are prophesying, again, he mentions from verses 3 and 4 to, to 5 and 6 about those who would be prophesying. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, and he's talking about right at the, right at the beginning or right at the time of the day of the Lord, that they won't, they won't need anybody prophesying anymore. But he says, if anyone comes to that point when his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And so according to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 13 uh, and, and, and 16, False prophets were to be killed when they came on the scene. And most of the time they were directed, I think in chapter 13 of, of that, they were directed by the nearest of kins to take care of those who were false prophets within their own family. And they were to be killed by their brother, by their, their parents, whoever it is. And so it's speaking here that in those days, the fathers and mothers, they will thrust them through with a javelin, with a, with a spear, whatever it takes to kill them, to get them out of the way. Because in that time, it, the day is coming where, where false prophecies like this will not be tolerated because righteousness is going to be dwelling and so, uh, so these false prophets will be done away with. There will be such a commitment to the Lord and His truth that even families will turn on those who are, are falsely, um, acu not accusing, but representing the Lord. And it also says that in that day, uh, in verse 4, 5, and 6, it talks about how these prophets will be ashamed of, of, of them being prophets because some of them will lie about their occupation in that they will not even wear the, the garments that some prophets would wear. They, they, they would claim rather that they are farmers rather than, than prophets. And if asked about the scars, and, and in our text here, it says that they are between your arms, but I think the King James says in your hands, but it's more between your hands that would be on your chest and on your back. And when they talk about what's those scars and what's those things that are on your body, they, they, were, they were done because of their idolatrous worship that sometimes they have to cut themselves and they do all this crap craziness if you've ever seen some specials of these people cutting themselves and doing all that's what they they would do back then and yet they would lie and say oh no it was our fa my family who wounded me because i was doing this um, many people have have looked at verse six and think that it's talking about about uh, Jesus Christ because it talks about the wounds that, that he got from, from his friends. And it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about false teachers or false prophets. When you get to verse 7, then the story switches a little bit here. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Verse 8, and it shall come to pass in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off or die, but one-third shall be left in it. 
I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will, be, or they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Here again, we have the stark contrast between the false prophets or the false shepherds that we just kind of looked at really quick in these last verses. And then we get to, to verse 7 and we have the true shepherd. We have the good shepherd. We have the great shepherd. We have the, sh- the chief shepherd. And the basic idea here when he starts talking about the shepherd and the sword is that God himself will direct the death of his shepherd. And so it did happen that the Lord allowed it. We covered this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 where it's talking about God. It says him or, or Jesus, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Again, it's speaking of how man killed Jesus. But again, God was the one that allowed it to happen. He is the one that sent his son to die for the sins of the world. It was pre-purposed or predetermined that that would happen. And when it says against the man who is my companion, the word companion in the Hebrew is comrade, kindred man, fellow, another. Um, as in the same level. And only Jesus, the Messiah, could the Father, God the Father, call a man who is my fellow, that is, a man who is my equal. So again, he is pointing, uh, it is pointing to that, the fact that God himself will direct this whole thing. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones Jesus quoted this part of the prophecy when he was on his way to Gethsemane with his disciples in, in Matthew 26, 31. And again, he refers to a portion of this when he was arrested at the garden in Matthew 26, 56. Matthew 26, 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Matthew 26, 56 says, But all this was done that the scripture, uh, the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the, the disciples forsook him and fled. And so Jesus pointing back to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 of what would be happening. And, and when it says, then I will turn my hand against the little ones. The reference is to God turning his hand against these little ones may refer to, um, and some believe, uh, when he allowed the, the church as it first started because it was built up and made up of many Jews, mostly Jews, that the Jewish Christians were being persecuted in the book of Acts. But more than likely, the reference of the scattering of the sheep of the, these little ones could refer to the time that Jerusalem was destroyed in, by the Romans in 70 AD. But it can also refer to the time that Jesus was talking in the, in the uh, Olivet Discourse 
in, in Matthew 24 and 25, when he prophesied about the scattering of the Jewish nation that would be fulfilled in the last half of the future tribulation period. And so, in essence, Zechariah is talking about how these will be uh, turned, God's hand will turn against his little ones. And he's almost combining, in essence, combining two situations back in 70 AD and still in the future and kind of joining them together. So, whichever the case is, they will be scattered. Um, again, the Jews, they, they struck the shepherd at the cross, and because of that, uh, it led to a nation being scattered in 70 A.D. But even today, Israel continues to be a dispersed people. Even though they're a nation, they, they are still all over the place. Many of them don't even believe in, in God. They're, they are agnostic and or atheists. And so they will one day, even though they're, they, they've been defiled and continue to be defiled, one day God will gather them together and he shall cleanse them. And that's the promise that he has. In verses 8 and 9 it says, And it shall come to pass in that day uh, in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they shall call on my name and I will answer them. I will be, uh, I will say, this is my people and each one will say, the Lord is my God. And so the nation of Israel will be refined. And I love the imagery that he gives us here of silver and gold because it speaks of how precious these are to God, that his people, but he will refine them. And they will need to go through the furnace of affliction. Again, they came through the furnace when they came out of Egypt. They went through the furnace when they went through Babylon. But I believe that in the time of Jacob's trouble, it will be so hot and heavy. The, the, the furnace will be hotter than they've ever experienced in their entire history. And so as a goldsmith refines gold and silver to bring the dross out, the impurities to cleanse them to where they become pure and fresh and clean, one day this will be accomplished in the nation of Israel. One third of the people will be spared, which would be the remnant, the believing remnant, and the other two thirds, they, they will be rejected and perish. And he says, I will call, they will call on my name. The godly, godly remnant who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that godly remnant will be the nucleus, the, the center, the heart, if you will, of the promised kingdom. Because the Lord has acknowledged it already. And it will come to pass. They will be his own people. I love the fact that he will renew their relationship with them because Israel has always been the apple of his eye. When, they, when, the, when God says, this is my people, the people will respond, and the Lord is my or our God. As we contemplate that covenant that God made with the children of Israel, as I was praying about today and just kind of thinking about doing something different, I was contemplating earlier this morning about communion and just having a time with the Lord and remembering the covenant. 
You see, God made a covenant with Israel. They are his people. And even though they break it, he will reinstate it one day. And I love the fact that tonight we can contemplate the covenant that Jesus has made with his bride. As, as, as awful as the crucifixion was, the death, the suffering, all that Jesus went through, there's a beauty associated with it. Not that we're morbid in any way, but if it wasn't for the death of Jesus, then me and you would still be in our sins. He wouldn't have paid for anything. And I love the fact that the resurrection is proof positive, and we'll be celebrating that in a few weeks. Proof positive that he paid for our sins. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to bless you, Lord, and we want to thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We want to honor you, Lord, tonight, Lord, as we remember communion, the, the Lord's Supper, Lord, as we remember all that you went through to allow us, Lord God, to be in this place tonight, to be able, Lord God, to worship and to honor you. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. We ask, God, that you would be glorified and that you would be just magnified in our time of worship as we pass out, Lord God, what represents your body and what represents your blood. I pray, God, that we would remember as we partake, Lord God, that is what cleanses us of all unrighteousness, cleanses us from our sin, Lord. Your, 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 your blood flowed like a fountain, Lord, and we are, we are cleansed, and we honor you for that. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.